0: Today's guest is author and thinker, Hansi Freinet. It's a pleasure to meet you, Jim. Ah, it's a pleasure to meet you, too. I've had so much fun reading your books. They were really good. Hansi a political philosopher, historian, sociologist, author of the books The Listening Society and The Nordic Ideology. Much of his time is spent alone in the Swiss Alps. I got connected to Hansi by starting to read his books, at least the first one, Nordic Ideology. And then I went on to read The Listening Society. And I really was taken with them. And I've been communicating with some of my friends about this. And one friend, very smart person, asked me, what did I really think? And I I told him about these books that this might be the best stuff I've ever read on social change, or it also might be a handbook for 1984 plus plus. Haven't decided yet. So uh, as you'll we'll see as we dig into this, the answer might just be both. So here we go. And my first question for you is metamodernism, which is your philosophical base for both these books, as the next step, but including postmodernism. And I got to tell you, personally, I've found postmodernism and postmodernist to be essentially crazy shit. You know, my view is the person that actually took it seriously wouldn't even be able to actually exist in the world or do anything productive. You know, of the thousand people I know well enough to make a guess about it, I'd say maybe three are actually postmodernists, actually believe it, and actually try to live it. Many others, especially in academia, are what I've come to call As if POMOs. They utter the words, they make the sounds, they may have some superficial behaviors, but I don't believe they actually believe it. So, my first question for you is Do you think postmodernism is really a widespread thing in this world? I do. I think it's very widespread.
1: It it depends, of course, on what we mean with postmodernism. We can uh, describe it as a kind of sensibility pertaining to the times uh, after the 1968 revolution, let's say, and uh, particularly breaking through in academia in the 17s and 80s, and in uh, popular culture in the 90s and, uh, and the 2000s. However, the way I mostly use it, and the way I think it's most meaningful to use it, is as a developmental stage. So it's a developmental stage either of a person and his or her ideas and sensibilities about the world, Or of a certain society and a certain uh, morality and certain form of reasoning and certain memes and values. Memes being like uh, genes in uh, organisms, in biology, but in cultures instead. So different forms or ideas or patterns that reproduce themselves. And when a society has been modern for a long enough time and it hasn't crashed under its own weight... Then, unmistakably, there will be a sub-element of postmodern values. So, starting with modernity early on, there was a protest against the callous, cold, empirical hand of the enlightenment and the the striving towards universality there was also a kind of dream of something particular a world that, that can be different given that we have all of these modern possibilities given that we have applied science couldn't the world be fairer couldn't it be sustainable couldn't it be less alienating and in different ways and forms postmodern ideas and values then have followed modern society around for 200 years. And they have grown from a trickle to serious attempts to redefine modernity and, for instance, through socialist revolutions and recreate society and create it at a new and higher stage. Today, as um, I would argue, or there are good reasons to believe that about 20 to 25% of the adult population in rich countries or western countries are postmodernist and experience the world through a postmodern lens and that they express in their lives and works and relationships postmodern values interesting and the postmodern values then they try to create something better than the mainstream capitalist society they believe that modernity And this story of progress isn't necessarily true, and that you can critique it by shifting perspectives, by including the excluded voices and so on, or playing with new perspectives in the arts or whatever and that there is some kind of emancipation or liberation or redefinition of everyday life that is possible. So it's a kind of religion, a critic, the religion of critique or the religion of criticism that has grown through intellectual practice of modern society. In a way, it's like the priesthood of traditional society. And uh, in that sense, I believe it is very real, I just don't think it has the answers for the next stage of society, which is why it perpetually uh, puts us in uh, in kill the socks and in dead ends. And this produces reactionary neo reactions that we are today seeing on a wide, massive scale, taking over pretty much all of the major governments in the world.
0: Yep. It's interesting. You know, obviously the 200 year part's interesting because what I would describe of what you were talking about is not necessarily postmodernism, but one of the branches of modernism. And I call it the Rousseau branch. When I look back at the Enlightenment, I basically divide the world into the Voltaire branch and the Rousseau branch. And the Rousseau branch then led to Romanticism, which then led to totalitarianism, which then led to postmodernism. And they're essentially part, uh, you know, postmodernism I would describe as a heresy of modernism in the same way that communism is a heresy of modernism. And I think it's a strange and weird dead end. And, you know, particularly in its academic uh, status where essentially uh, rejects science as a different kind of value than all the kinds of values that came before, et cetera. And so, you know, I'm one of them people who put a a big bad flag on postmodernism. And it's interesting, as I read your book, I didn't smell postmodernism, quite The opposite, right? For instance, in Nordic ideology, you talked about an empirical politics, simply policies, regulations, or practices can and should be based upon the best available information and empirically tested knowledge. I think that would cause most postmodernists I know to have a heart attack, right? And then later in the book, you talked about something that's very near and dear to my heart, which is a reformed enlightenment, enlightenment 2.0. And again, uh, the POMOs I know, If you said you wanted to create Enlightenment 2.0, they'd want to put you in Pomo prison. So (laughs) maybe it's the fact that you have transcended postmodernism in a major way. But I didn't get a sense at all that uh, where you were coming from was postmodernist.
1: Yeah. So if you look around uh, with everyday people, uh, most are going to be more modern minded. Most people don't have humanities degrees from one of the college campuses and they they didn't uh, spend five years in a English literature department and so on. Seeing in in media and in academia, uh, these strands are, however, quite dominant. So it's 20% of the population or 25% of the adult population, but not just any 25%. Postmodern ideas are generally a little bit more difficult to download. They take a little bit more time and so on to learn and to apply. So they have a lot of influence in our society. And for this reason, a lot of people, and I I sense that in in you as well, and I certainly sense that in my own life, uh, including losing jobs for this, et cetera, is that if you go against the postmodern sensibilities, which are deeply egalitarian, multi-perspectival, in a sense relativistic, relativist, um, not necessarily being in the most stupid caricature sense of relativism, that all things are equal. but there's a relativist underlying sensibility uh, that is tied to this egalitarianism that postmodern people will feel deeply insulted if you, for instance, uh, talk about growth hierarchies, which are nevertheless empirically uh, observable and and logically definable. So if you look at at the influence of these postmodern values, they are huge, and there's a great wall or a a kind of gravity of these postmodern ideas and values that will prevent people from trying to go beyond them. And from the postmodern mindset, it appears as though uh, a lot like to the what I call the Faustians and the post-Faustians. That modernity and postmodernity isn't the first iteration of this dynamic. In uh, uh, earlier times, we've had Faustian religions such as well, I don't know, the, the Viking religions or the, or the Babylonian religions or uh, the, the, the old Greek gods or whatever, which are a lot about power gods, a lot about a multiplicity of gods. And it, it's, I suppose, the basic ideas that form in agricultural societies. Within these societies, starting 2,500 years ago with the Axial Age, you had a critique, a moral critique of the power relations within the agricultural societies. They said, well, wait a minute, the power of the king shouldn't be arbitrary. It has to be universally verifiable. There has to be a higher truth, a a God beyond all gods. So there's the Brahman or there is the Buddha nature or there is, um, well, the god of Abraham or, or Java, who was uh, initially was the war god. And then after a while, Java actually killed off all the other gods or his disciples did. And it ended up as a monotheistic religion with one highest principle. And people said, OK, this one highest principle has to be moral and not based on power. It has to be universally true. And for instance, then uh, slavery was not permitted in post-Faustian religion. But in practice, slavery persisted throughout the period up until modernity. And uh, there was always a priesthood, a minority who looked at other people as heathens that would be enlightened by this religion, by this moral purity, by this refinement. And today, this and this is the point I want to make, today we don't have the priesthood anymore. I mean, we have them, they're just not very relevant in the the lives of very many modern people. Instead, we have the intellectuals, we have academia, we have the guilty conscience of, let's say, the intellectual left, of the critique of society, which has real methods and real methodologies, which are internally consistent and produce very real results, which cannot be produced by any other mode of thought than the postmodern thought. For instance, discourse analysis, for instance, ripping apart power structures, uh, showing us how carnally material they are and how much they affect our lives and how injustices harm human beings by structures that are so far beyond them and so difficult to grasp in our everyday lives. All of these things come with the postmodern frame or mindset. So what we have today is a kind of priesthood which views modernity as the heathens, all the normal modern people, they still have to learn. They still have to study. They still have to read their Foucault or understand the gender gaps and, and so on. But when they do encounter people like us or people like myself, at least uh, I don't know what if you would identify as metamodernist, when they come across somebody who speaks their language, I have a PhD in sociology. I can quote Foucault all day long, if you want. And I intuitively understand what Derrida is talking about. And I understand Chomsky's critique of of US uh, hegemony and so on. And I know these methods as a craft. I know the postmodern methods as a craft. And I know the postmodern irony. And I know the culture. And I understand the arts and the aesthetics. And I'm a hipster, I suppose you could say. And I still talk about hierarchies. I don't appear as a heathen no i appear as a heretic and then ah i like that (laughs) so it says in the in the beginning of listening society academic heresy yes this is what it is because if we try to play by their rules we will be stuck for years and years and we'll never get to the actual change that needs to take place. And that change is built upon the idea of growth hierarchies. For us to have any idea about where the world is going or should be going, we have to logically uh, see where it would make sense for it to go. And to do that, we have to see the world more hierarchically. And that is forbidden within the, the postmodern sensibility. And for this reason, we have to revolt against modernity. Yes, because modern life isn't good enough, as the postmoderns perpetually point out. And it's not sustainable either way. But we also have to revolt against the revolt. We have to revolt against mo- postmodernity. Yep. And this creates a horrible, horrible lapse in in mean, the jump to metamodernism if you don't make the whole analytical jump to metamodernism you can land in a neo-reactionary conclusion meaning you read up on julius evola and you put your hopes to stephen bannon and you will start conspiring against the modern world because you want the world basically to become some version of a nazi horror show and that's not a good solution
0: Indeed. Good stuff. You know, I'm going to push back a little bit on your 25% number, Mm -hmm. at least in the United States. I've been to Sweden. I've been to Denmark, like both, but don't have deep knowledge of what they're like. But in the U.S., about 30% of people are college graduates. No more than 10% of them could be said to have graduated from an elite university, which would give us 3%. And of those, no more than 30% these days are humanities majors. So that gives us a ceiling of 0.9%, so about about 1%. (laughs) So I'm going to argue that at most in the United States, the number of postmodernists is 1%, and I suspect it's considerably lower than that, because I happen to know a lot of people on Wall Street that have elite College, humanities backgrounds. And I can tell you, they're sure as shit not postmodernists. So I suspect that you are biased by the people you hang out with, and that mm-hmm. in the reality, those who are actually postmodernists are a fraction of one percent. But anyway, let's let's move on here. We could we could we could spend our whole ninety minutes on that.
1: It depends, uh, Jim. Uh, just just to retort very quickly, that it depends if you mean by the book postmodernists, as in people who can quote their Foucault, yes, of course, then you're down to less than 1%. If you look at the general sensibilities, and these are deeply seated values. So all the hipsters, all of them are postmodernists, almost all of them. All of the hippies, uh, except the ones who are regressive enough to believe in magic, are postmodernists, because they will have relativist, egalitarian, Deeply expressive values and so on. And they will be critics of modernity and they will believe that there is a moral purity that uh, needs to wash over the world and that needs to critique the world and change it rather than, as the stance uh, stances, a harsher or a more direct um, logic or dynamic or, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A kind of uh, mechanism or sequence that can lead us to. Uh, Through crude logic, lead us through this developmental phase until we have a new equilibrium state of the world, of politics, of the economy, and of our personalities and ways of viewing the world.
0: Just what I liked. That's what attracted me to metamodernism, why I continued reading, I don't know, a thousand pages or whatever it is. Because, you know, to your point, the postmodernists, at least I don't see them with anything constructive. You know, they're essentially wishful thinking. And as my first and best business mentor always told me, you can wish in one hand and you can shit in the other. And I'll bet you which one will fill up first. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So, anyway, let's get into the substance of your work. Let's start with the Listening Society. A uh, foundational building block in your writing is the idea of the effective value meme. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so, so this is actually goes back to, to uh,
1: exactly what we have been speaking about. So let, let's say we have a time machine, and uh, we can go anywhere in the world with it. And we go to, I don't know, we go to Rome in the 200s uh, uh, after Christ. And we talk to people in the street. And we ask them about questions about slavery. We ask them questions about death penalty. We ask them questions about men and women and the relationship between them. Uh, we ask them um, about uh, proper punishment of prisoners, and we would find a lot of their their ideas and ideals shocking. We'd find okay, this is very crude, it's very grim. Uh, uh, This wouldn't be bad people, though. We could sit down with them and we could laugh and talk and they would be friendly and perhaps we could fall in love with them and they with us. But they would have values that are very alien to us and that we would find horribly crude and uh, that just seem uh, cruel and unjust. And if we take one of them and place them in, in, let's say, a small town in Sweden. So uh, people here are polite and so on, and relatively highly educated in in the modern world and and all of that. And this person tries to understand their stances on slavery, um, on punishment, um, on gender equality and, and human rights, and even on animals or the biosphere. They would find all of these things Meaningless, abstract, wishy-washy, being too complicated that they're being that they're suffocatingly politically correct and so on, and that's that's a fundamental difference. Then that aha, th- there is some kind of shift there between this uh, Roman citizen and this uh, contemporary Swedish citizens, for instance, and. What is that difference? Well, okay, they have different norms, I guess you could say, or you could say that they have um, different that their personalities were shaped differently by different societies and, and and life conditions. And the question then is: Are these norms or personalities and perspectives that people hold are they arbitrarily ordered, or is there a logic to them? And the idea of value memes. Is that aha there are overarching deeper structures in how values are generated by societies or through the development of societies which will generate values that are similar to one another or correspond to one another and for this reason there's a huge difference between any agricultural society and any industrial modern society There will be huge differences in how these people think and act over time, at least. And likewise, you can go to tribal societies and there will be other sets of values. Individually, these people will have uh, perhaps... uh, will be nicer and more direct and, and, and so on than let's say your average New Yorker or in many tribes, varies from tribe to tribe, of course. But in many tribal settings, um, you will have maybe kinder people or, or uh, people who have better lives in many ways and or more competent, but their values will correspond to the size of that society. And so will their worldviews and indeed their personalities and their ways of thinking. That's the idea then that values can evolve with societies and they can, as different kinds of systemic challenges, I mean, different kinds of uh, things that happen around us in our dynamics as we interact in society, will put different demands on us as human beings in terms of values. So the metamodern values that I think are necessary today, they haven't yet developed. So we grow up in societies which uh, have for 200 years or so developed to modern and postmodern values, but we are facing what can only be termed as yet more complex challenges, climate change and uh, global governance and the global migration flows and uh, so on. And I, I mean, existential risks stemming from technology, all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, uh, consciousness altering substances, uh, psychiatry, the, the control of every citizen through the public system. There, there, are, there are so many aspects here that are incredibly complex and threatening of life itself. And we have populations who have values that are adapted to the modern age, meaning to expanding an industrial welfare state. That's it. That's what our values are set out to do. Uh, That's what they evolve to do. And a minority then uh, who have values that critique that same thing, meaning postmodern values. So you can work at a university and write a doctoral dissertation on injustices between different minority groups and so on. But these values are insufficient then for our populations to self-organize around these bigger and deeper and more complex and more universal issues. And this is why we need a deliberate institutional change that would work as a conveyor belt, much as education has done in modern modern society to get everybody up to the modern value meme, or most people up to the modern value meme. We have to get people up to the postmodern value meme, a lot more, and we have to get people up to the meta modern value meme. And today, none of our societal systems or institutions are built to do that they're not constructed to do that so we have a battle between these value memes this is a cosmic battle for the human soul for the world soul and is also a battle for survival if the more complex values win humanity wins and the biosphere wins if the less complex values win and they rule us in an increasingly complex surrounding a society we all lose and we all die
0: Yep, that's the dream, at least. Let's drill into that a little bit. Probably the most interesting part for me in the listening society was you then decompose the effective value meme into four parts, a model of hierarchical Mm -hmm. complexity, code or symbol stage, emotional state, and emotional depth. You know, let's particularly drill into the first two of those, and they're they're related, in my mind at least, which is the model of hierarchical complexity and your stages or code concept. Could you jump into those? Mm-hmm. So
1: the model of hierarchical complexity is basically a mathematization of, a, which means just clearly formulated. Uh, the key elements of the different stages of cognitive complexity. So, we all know that children think less complex thoughts than adults. They can still uh, think interesting thoughts or uh, intelligent thoughts, but it just never happened ever in the history of the world that a four-year-old came up with a new theory of physics. And there's a reason for that. The brain of the four-year-old does not perform thoughts of the corresponding level of complexity. It's not that you can't teach a four-year-old physics. You can. It's just, it's going to have to be simple physics. And this goes back to uh, Piaget, uh, who was a, a Swiss classic theorist on this, and a researcher, when it goes back to Kohlberg. And uh, my own mentor then, Michael Commons, was a student of Kohlberg. Kohlberg created adult stages of development above a normal adulthood with his moral reasoning tests. And what Michael, uh, he studied algebra for a while, and he realized that he could use this or apply this to developmental theory. And using abstract algebra, he could then see that, aha, there's a mathematical pattern to it here. You can actually formulate what all of the stages are. And this goes even down to amoeba level and all the way up to Einstein level. And then there are 17 such stages of adult development that have been discovered. And you could argue that there are higher stages, but the arguments grow thin there. And you can argue that there are lower stages, but the model starts to break down there. So it's kind of like even even within physics, of course, theories have a certain reach. Different scales within physics use different models and they actually aren't compatible. And this developmental psychology is like that as well. So you have a strict behavioral empirical science of studying the complexity of behaviors and just so happens different ad- adult human beings are going to have or display behaviors and thought patterns of different stages of complexity. So we are not all of us at the same stage of complexity in terms of our thought processes.
0: Could you bring that down a little bit? Let's get down more tangible yeah. and talk about what some of these stages actually are of hierarchical complexity. Mm, okay.
1: They're, they're not the easiest in the world to understand, but- there are four, four ones that I bring up in the book that are, cover most adult human beings. And the first one would be abstract. So abstract is when you can formulate an abstract variable and you can understand that, aha, even though I can't see it, even though it's not here, there can be more or less of this. And then you can see, it, they can start reasoning about things that aren't there. And this is almost all adult human beings reach this stage. Uh, most people reach it in uh, in about junior high. But there is a stage above that one, which more than half of adult human beings reach, but not all of us. And it's called formal operations. So that's when you can take several abstract variables and you can formulate in your head, a linear or even nonlinear relationship between them. So you can say, aha, it appears as though if this happened, then that happens. And you can test such formal relationships in your head. And that kind of corresponds to a lot of the work we do in modern society. A lot of it is maximize the profit of this company, for instance, or um, minimize this input and maximize this output, for instance. A lot of this is formal operations. And it's usually sufficient to, uh, to function well within a modern labor economy or division of labor to function at this stage and to think along these processes. But above that, you can create whole systems of formal relations the simplest ones we we learn in school by heart uh, simple equation systems uh, where you have to use the information from one equation to gauge information about another equation then you have to see the system where you, ha- you can see different feedback loops or whatever and only about 20% of an adult population reaches systematic reasoning which means that most academics will tend to be systematic stage thinkers But above that stage, at only about 1.8% of the population, you have meta-systematic reasoning. And meta-systematic reasoning corresponds more to, in mathematics, topology, for instance, that you can see that, aha, there are patterns within these systems. There are uh, properties of the systems themselves. And so you can compare these different properties and you can switch between different systems. And you can understand that the different systems have different logics. So you tend to be less reductive in your thinking. And people who are at systematic tend to get less well along with people who are, let's say, at abstract, because the people who are at abstract will think that the people are meta-systematic, just Talk a lot, and that they they aren't very concrete about what they do, etc. And people who are at meta-systematic will think people are abstract, are a bit shallow, and that they never really give them any haas when they speak to them, and so on. But that, this is just one out of four fundamental ways of growing as a human being. That.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about code next. I think that was a good introduction to your levels of hierarchical complexity. But the other one that I found very interesting, caused me to think a lot about both myself and uh, sort of the nature of social construction is your symbol stages or your code.
1: Mm -hmm. If you look at the previous theories on um, psychological development, they kind of mix all things up. They say, okay, so there, there are these people who are more modern and then there are postmodern people or there are color codes for these things in one theory that which is popular is called spiral dynamics or you call modern people orange people and then postmodern people you call them green but the problem is well what if you actually try to compare this with history so um going back to medieval times and looking at a genius of medieval times, they wouldn't understand Newton's physics or indeed even a simple coordination of two variables on a grid. This was invented by Descartes in the 1600s. So even the smartest person in the world, let's say uh, Thomas of Aquinas of the late medieval times, wouldn't know things and understand things and grasp things that are apparent even to a contemporary 12 year old. So apparently, society itself or culture itself seems to have embedded within it certain symbols or ideas that are of different stages of complexity. And because they are of different stages of complexity, they are non-arbitrarily ordered, meaning that there's a difference between people who live in, let's say, an agricultural society, like medieval times, and people who live in pre-agricultural tribal societies, and people who live in industrial societies or post-industrial societies like ours. So, uh aha, there appears to be a logic to how culture itself evolves, not meaning that it always evolves in the same way, but there is a deep pattern or structure to it, that the different modern societies of today are more comparable to one another than they are to even themselves looking 500 years back. And this catches another dimension of development, one that isn't so much personal, but is more sociological. Nevertheless, the culture itself must be downloaded into every single human being for him or her to use it. So people who are more complex thinkers will more likely to find the code available in that society that resonates with their stage of mental complexity. I mean, vice versa. Of course, if you come across a lot of the more complex code, this can also spur more complex thoughts in your mind and eventually may cause you to think more complex thoughts yourself. And have more complex perspectives.
0: That's interesting, but you know, I'm going to use myself as an example here. When I went through your books, I had to give myself an honest analysis. Where do I stand on these various dimensions? And I looked carefully and I concluded that I was a, a solid stage 14 paradigmatic on the hierarchical complexity scale.
1: So, just for the listeners, paradigmatic being the one after meta systematic.
0: Yeah. And I was definitely not a stage 15. So I said, yeah, solid middle stage 14. But in terms of my code, proudly modernist, right? In fact, you mentioned spiral dynamics and something I've been known to say and post on the internet is when I think of spiral dynamics, I think of it as an arch, not a spiral. At the top is orange. Mm -hmm. To the left, blue and red is increasing ignorance. To the right, green, turquoise, all that is increasing goofiness, right? So Uh, uh, I, I don't see this as a progression, right? I see it as gone off the wrong track, goddamn damn it, right? And so, in fact, I would guess I would call myself modern plus because I think that there's other ways that modernism can branch but not through postmodernism. So what are your thoughts about a person who was stage 14 in hierarchical complexity, but was kind of rejected the other postmodern and uh, metamodern I got an open mind on. Metamodern is interesting, but I definitely reject the postmodern code kit as actually useful. Also, before we get your answer to that, I'm also going to mention something I've been involved with for a number of years is something called Game B, which is a radical social change field. Theory and philosophy, and now ever more so uh, practical group, which can be found on Facebook at the Game B, G-A-M-E-B, Group. And the equivalent, I would say, of your stages or code is what we call deep code. Most of it mm-hmm. developed by a guy named Jordan Hall, formerly known as Jordan Green Hall. And I would say, at least in my mind, that it is a fork from modernity to something at least at the level of metamodernism and yet actively eschews postmodernism. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so this is a very interesting um, question. And Roughly speaking,
1: the only answer is that, aha, this kind of development, once you understand has four dimensions, and we didn't even get into the second two, which are more subjective dimensions, then we see that it's much more nonlinear than we think. And it tends to have a lot of unexpected dynamics to it. So let's see modernist paradigmatic. All right. So uh, first of all, we might, of course, always be wrong when we self-evaluate, but given your background and so on, it would make sense that you would be at paradigmatic. And I also talked to you before the uh, show started and that would make sense. Yes. That being said. The reason that we may reject postmodernism, there may be any number of reasons that have to do with the angle through which this is presented to us. It may have to do with the other two dimensions, which are uh, depth and state. Things that play on subtleties that we may not be uh, in tune with might, let's say, go over our heads and we, we might not see them. And for this reason, people may be saying things that mean, in terms of subtlety and their spiritual dimensions, things that aren't available to us. And looking at these effective value memes, they are emergent patterns within all of these four dimensions. So, they're a kind of sum, but sum is the wrong word. They're a kind of a dance between these four developmental dimensions. So our subjective state in every moment, the existential depth that we have developed in our relationship to existence, and the complexity of our thought processes and behaviors, and whatever symbols we have available. So you come across a bunch of symbols and you don't like them. There can be any number of reasons for why these symbols perhaps did not represent Let's say the real postmodernism. On the other hand, you come across meta modern ideas, which superficially, to people who are actually modernists, to an actual, let's say, orange modernist, there wouldn't appear to be a difference between my writing and all the Foucault stuff out there.
0: Hmm, I see it radically different. But anyway, continue.
1: But if you look at, for instance, uh, re- reactions on the web, people who are modernists, they don't see any difference. Between postmodernism and metamodernism. to them, well, this is also somebody talking about structures. They're also about social justice. They're also about critiquing modern society. They're also about touchy feely stuff about inner things, and and they're they're revolting against everyday life stuff and being normal and uh, wow. investing your life and getting a villa and, and a job and all of that stuff. So, on a superficial level, if you were actually at the modern value meme, then you wouldn't resonate with what I write. You would find it indistinguishable from postmodernism. So most likely you simply had a, like an allergic reaction and then you couldn't see any other alternatives around. Uh, so you just saw, okay, I'll just hang out here for a while because I still believe in science. Who doesn't? And I can see these people are, are getting into culture wars and, and identity politics, and I don't like that. And I feel I don't get a sense of truth and uh, and direction when I see their critiques of science and so on. And probably you also got not very fair representation of real postmodern ideas, which actually do hold up against the modern ones. Uh, If you go to the core of them, postmodern ideas per definition are the ones the modern worldview will lead you towards, which is the the argument that I make in the listening society, that the, the symbol stages, modern, postmodern, metamodern, are not arbitrarily ordered, that all of the modern ideas, if you take them to their utmost conclusion, they will collapse under their own weight and they will lead you to postmodern conclusions. But the postmodern ideas, when you take those to their ultimate point, they collapse under their weight and they lead you to metamodern conclusions, which seemed counterintuitive and even heretical to the postmodern mind. And if you already were a complex thinker, and you only had the modern ideas and postmodern ideas in terms of complexity and so on. These ideas tend to resonate with metamodernism, but it, you only had these to choose from, and you could see that the postmodern ideas, and often they're in, in misused forms, that they were distasteful to you, then you simply rejected them and then you were frustrated with them. And I'm very happy you were here talking to me instead of taking the route that so many of our good friends have done these days. And it's to say, I hate postmodernism. I hate postmodernism. I hate postmodernism. So then they wake up the next morning and they say, I hate postmodernism three times again. And it just goes on for years. And after a while, they say, I hate it so much. I don't even care about all of those ideas and ideals and social justice things they're bringing up. So actually, I do want to kill the immigrants. And actually, I do want men to rule women and actually I don't like democracy and actually some smart person should create some order in this world and actually the military isn't so bad and actually we have to stand up for ourselves against nation and actually history is not a progress thing it's cyclical and periodical and we're in a downfall and somebody has to rise up and save this thing and whatever you become you have become a Nazi. So a lot of the high-stage people today are becoming Nazis, and a lot of those who are high-stage because of their depth and state, but are low on complexity, are becoming hippies who believe in magic. This is very counterintuitive. Highly developed people are more likely to believe crazy things than average developed people. So you have among the highly developed people, highly, highly dangerous groups of new Nazis coming up, or fascists of different brands. And you have magic beliefs, because people have such strong spiritual and psychedelic experiences, they can incorporate intellectually. And you have beliefs in aliens. I mean, these things are growing. And if you challenge the people on their ideas about aliens and the UFOs,
0: they will answer, please take a DMT trip, and then you will know. I've heard them say it, and I go, I have taken a damn tea trip, goddammit, and I had all kinds of weird thoughts, but I can explain them easily as brain rhythms plus the confabulator, right? Right. Interesting. So, yeah, interesting. I guess I'll continue to push back a little bit and say that it's not obvious to me yet, maybe uh, if I think about it and read more, that one must go through postmodernism to get to a higher level, let's call it game B deep code, which I would say is surprisingly similar to metamodernism, but explicitly Rejected postmodernism. And and let me get back to why I rejected postmodernism. I I probably didn't get the best exposures to it, but I did read most of the writers and uh, and commentaries on them, et cetera. What I came out with, and again, as I told you before the call, I'm actually a pretty simple guy, right? I'm not a natural philosopher. When I hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol, et cetera. But my real rejection against postmodernism was not its excessive intricacy, but that it did not appear here useful and people who listen to the show and know me in real life know that my catechism you know my shining star of making decisions about systems about ideologies which i hate in general uh, philosophies and theories is is it useful? And I never found anything in postmodernism that would actually let us build a better world reasonably expeditiously. Uh, it just seemed to be a swamp in which there was no getting out. While metamodernism does not have that smell and nor does game B deep code. And so I guess I would say it's at least, uh, it seems to me possible that one can get to you know how to build a much better world that is Guys, much more justice, operates, it avoids the uh, self-terminating loop that our current game A is caught in, et cetera, without having to go through postmodernism. But I suspect we'll just have to agree to disagree about that one.
1: I suppose, I mean, just saying a few things that are useful about postmodernism, if you worked at a sociology department like I did, you, you see the research. So for instance, the UN today has all of these development programs. And they are all based on analysis of structural injustice of different kinds, which is the essence of postmodern thinking. And if you take the modern modern person and his or her sensibilities, he or she does not in their core believe that everyday life is fucked up. He or she does not in their core feel that life is not sustainable, it is alienating, and harmful to the human soul, uh, everyday life, and that people are are being, let's say, mutilated on on a subtle level, and they do not believe that society is fundamentally unjust. So that impetus and the methods for working with that impetus and doing so intelligently and in a structured manner is the essence of postmodernism. If the modern mind says, is it useful, the postmodern mind will reply, useful according to what axioms, useful according to whom, and you will see that within the question, what is useful, is hidden some kind of interest, and the postmodern mind will deconstruct that interest or it will expose it and it will be able then to compare it to other forms of interest. And then it will show you that what you thought was useful was perhaps not as useful as you thought, or it was perhaps uh, useful to some, but not to others. But the postmodern mind then forbids you to actually rank these different forms of usefulness and then choose one and then synthesize all of them. Exactly. And, and that's the shift between postmodern and metamodern.
0: Okay, that's good. But that, that's exactly my critique that it's not useful. It leads you into a swamp of idiocy. I had a discussion recently with some people I would say are probably postmodernists on how to address climate change, right? I know how to address climate change. It's pretty goddamn straightforward, right? It's big. It's the equivalent of fighting a couple of World War IIs, but it's definitely doable, right? But then they got into all this postmodernist horseshit, and they got to the point where, as you said, they had all these possible ways of looking at it and no principal way to pick one. If you can't pick one, you can't do anything. You know, the first element of management of anything is the ability to make decisions. And if postmodernism does not lead to the ability to make decisions and proceed. It's by definition, not useful.
1: Most emblematic postmodern thinker, Foucault, he was asked explicitly, well, what are you for? You're you're just picking apart everything. And he said, you know what? There are so many economists and engineers and lawyers in this world, and they're all busy building stuff. I don't want to. I'll let them do it. I'll just pick it apart. And that's actually the, the essence of postmodernism, that it always ends in the critique, that the critique is the result. And to the postmodern mind, who has that kind of sensibility, being the smart person who said the question that others couldn't answer, that in itself is the end point, is the result. Actually, a lot like Christianity, like post-Faustianism, as I call it, the stage that criticized the agricultural Faustian society. It always just ends in a critique and not a to-do list. And that's where it's different. If you look at these different value memes, every second one is a critique or is a a more passive one, which picks the early ones apart and and creates a new morality. And then next one is a more agency-oriented one. But metamodernism doesn't really add new morality to the postmodern one. I mean, sure, we can, we can rewrite some uh, ethical theories and so on, uh, but our morality is actually the same one. Stop climate change, make sure the world isn't crazily unequal in terms of uh, resource distribution, make sure it's sustainable, make sure people have meaning in their lives, make sure people are seen and heard on the inside more on that the things are a lot more authentic; that they can bloom, or that we can bloom. Stop torturing the animals. I mean, all of these things are already there at the postmodern value. I mean, the, the difference is we can do it. Much like modernity, modern society. You know, in the, in the 1800s, the British Empire stopped slavery, and from there on was just a waterfall, and slavery ceased around the world within 100 years. And Christianity had been against slavery for 2,000 years, for crying out loud. And within the British Empire, it wasn't the modernists. It wasn't, you know, all the scientists or the businessmen who ended slavery. It was the Christians.
0: Yeah, it was Wilberforce, right? He was a, definitely a Christian public intellectual.
1: Yes, yes. Which is interesting. The same role is there for the postmodernists today. We will use the postmodernist populations for a kind of moral mobilization, but it is only possible within the institutions and economies created by metamodernism.
0: I like that. Actually, I like that, because then you get away from this swamp of inability to make any decisions.
1: Yeah, I I mean, the Christians just had you pray again and again and again, and nothing happened, or go to another comment or whatever, and the postmodernists just have you go to the university and writing the critique of the critique of the critique, and that's it.
0: Okay, exactly. So yeah, if we think about it that way, cuz in general, you know, I am and I would say the game B deep code is, you know, strongly in favor of egalitarianism, the elimination of bigotry and prejudice, equal opportunity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think at the values level, fairly similar, but the methodology just seems so fucking goofy. I have no interest in going down there. So but I like your I, I like your presenting it. Okay, let's let them say that they've developed a useful set of morals, but let's ignore their methods and let them play with their methods and let them write their morals. And then we'll take the morals and we'll go put them to work. God damn it.
1: I, I wouldn't go as far as ignore. I would say use them and put them in their proper place and don't let them stop you from doing your stuff.
0: Okay. That's that's good. I actually learned something there. Good. That actually improved my mental working kit a little bit. I still don't like postmodernism, but I'm going to think about it a little bit differently now. <laughs> Let's get back to a couple other more detailed points, uh, one of which I think is very important. Here's a direct quote from listening. The same goes for metamodern code, which only less than 2% have the cognitive hardware, that's your word, to operate successfully. This might be a, an insurmountable problem to metamodernism. If hardware less than 2% can run metamodern code, how can you ever get it to work?
1: Yeah. I don't know. So I mean, just to get back on what I'm saying there in in the book, that I mean, the reason a lot of people hate postmodernists so much is that it's relatively sophisticated. It's not about yelling at men for them making a little bit more money or or shaming somebody for writing uh, high girls instead of high vagina bearers or so on. It's actually about structural critiques, which requires systematic stage thinking to be done properly. Uh, You have to actually see systems, you have to see cultures as objects, and you have to look at them dispassionately and so on, which is difficult to do. And and not a lot of adult people can do it, or a lot of people can do it, but just about 20% of the population. And then following the the research by Commons, if you look at how many people reason at the meta systematic stage, it's about 1.8%. And then if uh, you go down to paradigmatic, it's we don't know, but if it follows the same normal distribution, it's going to be one in a thousand, or about, or a couple in a thousand. And if you then look at this, aha, metamodernism, what, what what are we doing here? We're looking at inner development and the different subsystems of inner development. And then we're putting together different subsystems of inner development. Some of them are sociologically built and um, or constructed, meaning that the inner development depends on outer development, and then we have to create institutions for that. And then we have to coordinate that with the people who create those institutions and so on. We're in the space of meta-systematic thought processes. We're in complex thought processes. And if you try to use a kind of code, you kind of run a complex code in a simpler form, And this has happened many, many, many times in history, from religion to political ideologies to scientific theories and so on, they get simplified when they're popularized. So what happens if you run a metamodern code on a lower stage of cognitive complexity? Well, what happens is you get flattened versions of it. So you get uh, versions are going to look at surface level a lot like metamodern politics or or have the same goals or ideals or norms but they're not actually going to work they're going to produce lots of pathologies so for instance people will say okay listening society so it's good to always take in the perspectives of others and then they'll spend a lifetime just taking in the perspectives of crazy people and not being able to coordinate them, for instance. Or they will think, aha, so there are growth hierarchies between human beings. And I'm, of course, of the higher stage. And so those of us who are at higher stages have moral privileges. And we can decide for the others, because we're better than them. You can think of any number of perversions of this code. Or you could say, wait a minute, so this is a holistic vision of society in which uh, things are brought together to resonate as one whole, and small groups people have to get together and conspire against society to do this, aha. And these small groups of people have to do a military coup, for instance, and boom, you have fascism. And then they're going to start killing people uh, who are deemed to be lower stage. I mean, hey, you can go a long way with this into crazy land and, and into, frankly, uh, war crime land. And it, towards the end of the second book, I write, these are dangerous dreams.
0: Yep. I've I respected you for that. You are totally honest. You know, As I said, coming in to this uh, interview, I said, once I'd gotten to about the 40th percent point on the second book, I said, this might be the best stuff I've ever read on social change, but it also might be a handbook for 1984 plus plus, right? And the answer is it's both. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I I mean, um, unfortunately, I believe the existential predicament here. I mean, I wish I could say, okay, I, I called God. And I foolproofed my theory, and I made sure that it's going to be read in the right way, and I made sure I didn't make any mistakes, and I made sure that my subconscious didn't have any evil drives I wasn't aware of that that subtly uh, steered my hand in typing. (sighs) But I can't do that. Absolutely. It is what it is yeah i mean so it is what it is and but on the other hand what else to do i mean should we should we stop thinking about theories about where we want to go as a society or, or what, what the state should look like or what the markets should look like and uh, the welfare systems and so on i mean because it's too dangerous and only megalomaniacs would do that so then nobody's allowed to ever to ever have an opinion on it that that's crazy Yep. but nevertheless that's what the liberal mainstream will tell us they'll say no we don't want your theory because it's totalitarian and you're a megalomaniac for even daring to take it upon yourself to answer such questions. Aha, so your plan is nobody answers the questions and we all die?
0: Yep, exactly. It's identical to our game B issue. It's yeah. amazing how similar that is because you know we basically say that we are on a self-terminating curve, period, if we don't change our ways, right? And yet, when we propose these radical techniques, people say, you're nuts. This is, uh, you know, communism, or this is fascism, or it's both communism plus fascism. And so it sounds like Mm -hmm. we all have the same interesting problem, which neither of us have solved. I, I will absolutely say game B has not solved this, which is how do we create what you call the flattened version that actually resonates with people. And and when you were saying that, an, an image came to my mind, which is my grandmother, long since deceased, was Irish and a fervent Catholic. I went to Mass mm-hmm. every day, right? Celebrated the Saint Days every day of the year, right? Very Catholic. But her Catholicism was very shallow. Nothing like Thomas Aquinas's, right? But somehow it satisfied her as an ape with clothes, right? As a resonating human living in her body and her mind. She loved her Catholicism more than she loved her own kids, truthfully. So there was an example of a very successful flattening from, let's say, Aquinas or the uh, 19th century version of Aquinas to my mother's Catholicism. So I guess I would throw that out to you and your collaborators as something you need to figure out is a flattening of metamodernism that's as attractive to people today as a flattened version of Catholicism was to my grandmother in nineteen thirty. I
1: wouldn't overemphasize the need for popularization. Most of all, we need to find the right people and we need to affect the knowledge generation trajectories of, let's say, actually just a few hundred people around the world at this point, meaning that... For us to make serious change happen, we need people who seriously work over the long time and commit their lives to some kind of modern slash, call it whatever, game change, and seriously will consider plans and take risks um, with their own lives to play parts in these plans, and who are prepared to learn a million new things while doing this, and to do it in a coordinated manner with other people. Because without these core groups, I mean, we can have all the popular demands for a listening society we want, uh, new forms of politics or whatever the things suggested in in my books, but without some people who are actually doing the hard work and carrying the brunt of it and coordinating and resonating with one another, it's just not going to happen. So that's number one part, and you know from there on, the the popularization is a secondary concern because first of all, we need to actually start to affect institutions and political games and and uh, markets out there and knowledge creation processes i
0: don't know i think if we got a flattened version that was truly attractive it would actually aid in that tremendously imagine if there were uh, a flattened version of metamodernism that was attractive to 20 percent of the population as my grandmother's catholicism was to her your ability to move politics and markets would go up exponentially like double exponentially
1: perhaps true. As things look today, I mean, think about it, though. You asked me before, 2% of the population, roughly, have meta-systematic reasoning, and this appears to be at least partly genetically uh, determined. Uh, probably you can increase these percentages, but we don't really know. And when I see and hear people reasoning about these things without complex minds, I see them drawing not so good conclusions. And I actually prefer (laughs) to I feel reassured when people are a little bit more conservative and don't try on all of these crazy ideas uh, and just stay with more common sense stuff. Because things get really crazy really fast, even in highly intelligent people. You also need to have all your tools in the shack, so to speak. I mean, uh, there are also all of the emotional and, and psychological pathologies that you can have and today we're seeing the, the, the emergence of early metamodernists, and a lot of us are relatively crazy, unfortunately, and highly dysfunctional people, and a lot of have a lot of diagnoses and so on and, and take a lot of medications because it's unusual people and sensitive people. So, I mean, what I see today is that I'm not overly optimistic about reaching. A lot of people with a lot of these ideas because they will be misunderstood. And uh, when they are flattened, almost per definition, when they are used politically, that's not good. The metamodern perspective, an important part is to respect developmental stages. So, for your grandmother, for instance, a post Faustian or traditionalist religion, Catholicism in this case, was a sound foundation for her life and for her life narrative and meaning making structure. And I suppose a source of, uh, of, of uh, stability and so on. And that's the metamodern perspective then that, aha, uh-huh, not everybody can be a metamodernist all the time. Rather, it doesn't matter if people buy the idea of metamodernism or, or something like that. It just matters that their, their agency aligned with ours, in a complex weave of relations which lead to a shared common goal. Which an important part of this is changing then the informational architecture of Internet society. And today the informational architecture does not do its work to coordinate human agency and perspective in this larger weave. Another part of it is, you know, on, on a political level, uh, we have no real coordinating. Uh, principles beyond the nation state. And we are not in a world that has anything to do with the limits of the nation states. So that's the important thing. Not that everybody becomes a metamodernist. It doesn't matter really, you know, uh, or or everybody believes in one particular idea or dogma. is rather that these things are graded, much like, you know, you worked in creating the internet. You didn't care about talking people into believing in the internet. You just knew, hey, this shit's going to work. This is where the future attractors are pointing. And if you are early on the solutions, you're going to win and people are going to play along.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting approach. That's sort of a, I will be the wizard of Oz behind the scenes manipulating things so that a meta modern perspective occurs in our society, even if metamodernism isn't out front, which may actually be a better idea than what postmodernism has done. I mean, we think about the the woke Right. And I'm with you. I am terrified of the growth of neo Nazism everywhere, even in Sweden. Right. And I know, frankly, I know some Swedes and I know some working class Swedes, and a surprising number of them, even though they would probably never say it in public, have some extraordinarily backward views all of a sudden just in the last few years. And I mm-hmm. suspect a lot of this is reaction to the elitism of the postmodernists. Right. Yep. People say, fuck those people. And I will tell you, my working class roots you know, on occasion would say to me, fuck those postmodernists. I'm going to vote for Trump just to be an asshole, right? I would never actually do that because I also am capable of simulating the unfolding of our society. And the last thing I want is for us to go in that direction. But I feel the emotional tug of rejecting elitism, a pompous, a self-congratulatory elitism of the woke sort. And so perhaps you're, maybe you are onto something here that maybe this has to be done in a Wizard of Oz fashion where the world doesn't even know that it's being done. But anyway, that's a an interesting topic. And the we could talk for two hours on it, but.
1: I know, I know. The thing is, Jim, Wizard of Oz is a, is a very good analogy. And when the wizard is confronted by Dorothy, she says, you're a bad man. He said, I'm not a bad man. I'm just a bad wizard. And it's kind of like that. We don't actually need a conspiracy. Or yes, we do need a conspiracy. We just need it to be boring enough for people not to care. And then basically they can't stop us. So it's an open conspiracy. Because we're not doing anything unethical and we're not working to harm anybody. And we're actually working to include people's perspectives and to uh, align their goals with the goals of others. And we're looking to deepen democracy and so on. And we're not looking to uh, tear down the world order and create a new master race or anything crazy. We're just looking to actually deepen the, the structures of modern society so that they can fulfill the promise that they they set out to fulfill in, during the enlightenment, which they never fully have. And we're looking to fulfill the longings and critiques and, and, and address the critiques of the postmodern sensibilities. So we can answer for ourselves. We have nothing to hide. So we can conspire against the modern world, but we don't have to do it in secret. Because if anybody asks what I'm doing, I'll be happy to tell you.
0: Yeah, that's also our game B philosophy absolute legality and total radical transparency, right? Yeah, that's a very interesting strategy. Seems like we've converged on some interesting tactics. So, this is very enlightening, interesting part of the discussion. Let's move on to the next piece. In the listening society, the word spiritual or spirituality occurred 176 times. And as people who listen to the show know, I hate the word spiritual and spirituality. In fact, I usually call it the S word. <laughs> and so I want to know what t- what is spirituality to you and why is it relevant?
1: It's refreshing to get this question, Jim. You know, because when I speak to uh, integralists, they always ask me why I'm so secular. I'm so critical of spirituality, and you you uh, <laughs> hit me from the opposite uh, direction. You say, well, "Why do you include it so much? Why are you obsessing about it?" And basically, uh, spirituality is important because, in some sense, the religions were right. And when modern society happened, uh, we, of course. Um, divorced a bunch of beliefs that had to do with uh, Jesus walking on water or whatever. But we also, in the same move, because there were so many so strong and so powerful things happening around around this um, dynamic new development that was going on with industry and and science and and capitalism and everything, that we forgot about some things that the religions actually got right. That, uh aha... if you look deep enough inside, there will be very, 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 very strong experiences of some kind of wholeness or love or, or connection. And these experiences are very, 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 very important for the rest of your life once you've had and you can't unsee them. I mean, you, you can, but usually it's a developmental thing. Once you develop that depth, then it's there and you, you can remember it, you can know about it. And in that sense, you become a believer if you have strong spiritual experiences. That's, that's in the sense I use the word spiritual. It's anything that has anything to do with a higher subjective states, the higher subjective states when we Look within. We notice there's nobody there, and things kind of open up, and things are crystal clear. Like there's a pristine clarity, a kind of super presence that's just there, and things. Then there, there are no words to, to grasp it or describe it. We just get a sense of beauty and meaning, and everything is gonna be all right. And in in the history of philosophy, then. In mainstream history writing about philosophy or mainstream uh, textbooks this impetus of philosophy isn't present I mean they they, they never uh, take this seriously enough and discuss it but philosophy is driven by high complexity people but also by people experiencing high subjective states by people being in modes of the mind or of experience itself uh, which bring them to, Completely new conclusions about existence and reality. I mean, this is described in Descartes. He sits by the fire and he and he has his great insight. And this is a spiritual experience that he that he describes uh, in his biography. Here, it just goes back all the way, and it goes back to Plato. It goes back. Actually, uh, a, a bit less in science then. Uh, science uh, seems to be a little bit less driven by the spiritual impetus. But philosophy and definitely all of the religions which have had these compelling images and, and stories that people have built their meaning-making structures around all come from these exceptionally high states, which also connect us often to some notion of of terror or hell or, or the seriousness of the matter of existence, that suffering is real and a very, 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 very profound and very, very, very grim suffering is possible, suffering beyond our imagination. And then we have to think, take the spiritual struggle to get out of that suffering very, very, very seriously to go to heaven or not to hell or to... Uh, so, so in, in some general sense, the religions weren't wrong. And that's, that's a big difference then between the metamodern mind and the modern mind. The, the metamodern mind says, okay, sure, Jesus didn't walk on water and Moses didn't actually part the sea. That's crazy talk, of course. And, uh, and of course, Galileo was right. And of course, people of the Inquisition shouldn't have gone after him. But it doesn't mean that contemplation isn't a powerful psychospiritual technology. And it doesn't mean that the mainstream ideas that we have about consciousness, et cetera, in a K-12 school, which is basically nothing, they they just kind of avoid the question and the, the underlying assumption is some kind of materialist reductionism, that these things may be wrong. And more spiritual views, views that are informed by these higher states and the the kinds of reasoning that flow from these higher states may be more relevant to describing the nature of reality and thus our place in it and thus how we can and should act within it and relate to it and relate to one another and to ourselves and so on. So because these things are real, because they are present, we cannot ignore them. And because metamodernism then is a, is about growth, psychological growth, and, uh, and existential growth, and cognitive growth, and sociological growth, and so on, to so the farther stretches of human development, it also pushes us into the farther stretches of existential development. And that pushes us beyond the reaches of everyday life consciousness or or uh, states of awareness into these unusual or altered states of awareness. Did you read this book? Is uh, by... Um, I, I know you read a lot on consciousness, and I have a favorite, very recent one, by um, a British journalist, and I don't remember the name is uh, the name of the journalist. He's uh, in the Guardian, but he uh, he wrote a book called "Am I Dreaming," and it describes all the latest research. On these altered states of consciousness. And uh, and then he takes an ayahuasca trip uh, trip and stuff like that. And what he says is that the red thread, or I mean, the the connecting, what connects the dots here is that when we are in the highest states of of awareness, or or, I mean, those blissful, open states of uh, psychedelic states and so on. All the neurons fire. Uh, I mean, there's like a, connections are made in a much, much wider sense. And then it's like a reset button for the brain so that the st- structures can change radically in these moments.
0: Let me cut, push back on this a little bit, just for our audience. I believe the book is Am I Dreaming by James Kingsland. Does that sound right? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, looks very interesting. I have not read it, but I will. And I'll put forth that I actually have a significant amount of experience with these higher-end altered states. I've mm-hmm. probably done uh, heavy psychedelics six or seven times, milder psychedelics a hundred times. I've done quite a bit of bio-neurofeedback-oriented excursion Excursions. I can easily put myself into a mystical state for you know five or ten seconds. It's kind of fun. I can do it for a longer period of time. But it's a lot more work. I can put anybody into a, a mystical state. And give me thirty six hours. So anyway, I, I know these things are real, and I've had these experiences, and I've even heard the song right, which I have reached by various of these methods. It's song with no words. It's but it has words. It's very weird. However, my takeaway when I combine this lifelong set of experiences with knowing a fair amount about cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience is that these are less than we think they are. They're enjoyable and they're useful tools, and we should measure them by their efficaciousness for us to live our life, not as if they are some journey to greater truth. What I think they actually are, and there's an amazing book called The Mind is Flat by Nick Chater that came out, I don't know, about a year ago. He's a UK uh, linguist, actually. And uh, his argument, which crystallized this whole view for me, is that the mind is not full of great depths. There's no depths at all, actually. What there are are uh, networks of the brain and the brain and the body, and then there are rhythms on those networks. And then an atypical state is an unusual network and or atypical rhythms, and you go, well, how come we see specific things or get these particular sets? And that is that they are th- those unusual networked rhythms are then processed by the probably only human has this capability, which I call the confabulator. It's the part of our brain that invents narratives to try to provide some sense of cohesion to our brain states. Confabulation is a key finding of an earlier line of research, the split brain experiments of might Xanaga and others where, you know, you show something to the side of the, where for people who have their brains split in half uh, due to severe epilepsy, where the big heavy bundle, the corpus callosum is severed. So we don't get the normal left, right, hemispheric high-speed transfers. And so things that are seen by the left side of the brain aren't seen by the right and vice versa, you get these amazing stories where you show something to the uh, left side of the brain, which a left eye, which goes to the right side of the brain, which is not linguistic. And then you ask some questions that are only tangentially related. And even though the person will say they didn't see anything, their left side brain will invent some very elaborate, almost insane story, but a story that is nonetheless coherent with respect to the perception that actually occurred. And Shader's view and, and, you know, I'm getting there that, that this may actually just be true, is that all the things that we experience in these altered states are essentially the confabulator operating on very atypical brain-body networks and atypical rhythms. This is not Chater's words. This is now my words. It's fairly similar to those computer generated story uh, systems. We're using a, you know, a, a bunch of algorithms that can generate a story that's sort of okay as a story, but it's just generated randomly. And that Maybe all this stuff that we're experiencing as depth is unusual networks plus the confabulator. And so that we should enjoy them I do enjoy them. And and you mentioned something that I find that's most useful for me is to break the circuit. You know, uh, I found that these kinds of experiences about once every six weeks were perfect. It used to be back when I was working real hard, I'd roll myself a big wad of joints and smoke as much marijuana as I could tolerate about once every six weeks. And it was a really good reset. But on the other hand, I, didn't, I don't think I ever found the answer to a problem in the resultant mental states. And so I wish people would not get so infatuated with these things and take them for what they're good for, where they're useful, but don't think that they're actually giving them an insight into fundamental reality itself.
1: So, I mean, this is really at the core of a lot of my thinking and what I do. So it's, it's difficult for me to answer briefly, but I'm, I'm, I'm um, going to have to try to. So basically, I, w- I would say there are two positions which are both sins here. Uh, one position is essentialism. It's the ascribing of depth onto a surface. And the fundamental insight of postmodernism, I mean, starting with Andy Warhol, but it actually goes through all of the postmodern thinkers, is exactly what you're saying. It is that there is no depth. There is only, again, uh, this goes back even to the depths of postmodernism or to its its origins, its roots. And Dorothy talks to the Wizard of Oz, actually proto-postmodern piece of literature. And she says, you're a bad man when she discovers he's not a wizard. And he says, I'm not a bad man. I'm just a bad wizard. Aha, there is always just a surface, always just a surface. And that actually goes for all phenomena. So right now I'm looking at the handle of a door. And I mean, in a deeper sense, you can explain away the doorknob. I'm like, there's no doorknob. It's just a piece of metal with some plastic on it. And you put it, and you you, you wouldn't think there's a doorknob here? Well, it depends on, on which level of analysis it makes sense. Nevertheless, in my experience, I'm looking at a doorknob And there is a doorknobness to the doorknob, which is inescapably there, which is the the experience itself in phenomenology. And this brings us to uh, this uh, other hated word of yours, (laughs) metaphysics. It it lands us in the question of metaphysics, that, uh aha, is phenomenology reducible to the objective third-person parts that constitute it, its correlates in, in the objective reality. And my answer is, it's a yes and a no, but it's mostly a no. That there is, just as you can make the sin of essentialism, saying, oh, I saw angels, so angels are there, that's essentialism, another person sits down and has his or her spiritual experience. Let's say they're having sex and uh, something fantastic happens and their, their whole being opens up and they see the stars. Boom. And their partner says, you didn't see the stars. (laughs) Your neurons fired. And then you confabulated the stars. Well, it doesn't take anything away from the experience. And what, when I I talk about the importance of spirituality. I talk about the importance of that experience, the, uh, that when we have those experiences, they don't feel like epiphenomena. And in a sense, they aren't any more than, than everything we experience is epiphenomenon of, of uh, our experiencing biological brain. So we can take them seriously in the sense that we can learn from them, not about metaphysics per se. Like you said, the wordless song. I didn't hear the wordless song. Would love to do that, actually. But if the wordless song still tells you something about, let's say, the enchantment of existence, of being, it doesn't tell you anything about the composition of atoms or, or, or uh, whether or not Miami is in Florida. So, we cannot conflate it with that sort of knowledge. And that's kind of the point with my four dimensional theory of growth. I specifically go after the gurus. I say, well, here's Eckhart Tolle, and he has high states, and he sees the stars, and he walks out around on clouds a lot of the time, and, uh, and feels very loving. Should we listen to him? No. Why? Because the guy's stupid. I mean, read his book, it's stupid stuff it's basic and his psychology is bad. His his psychiatric advice is harmful. Uh, His analysis of society is patently incorrect. He's more divorced from science than uh, any cat you would have at home. I mean, it's, it's, it's just not somebody you should listen to on any other topic than on having a high state. And then of course, there is a general insightfulness in his work and it is unmistakably there. And, and this is what I mean, just because you can find the physiological correlates for something, look in the eyes of one of your psychedelic friends and look in the eyes of one of your Wall Street friends, assuming they're not the same. And the Wall Street friend, and let's say that the Wall Street friend is, uh, is conventional modernist then, the Wall Street friend is going to have less depth in their gaze, and it's noticeable. And they're going to be less subtle in their movements, they're going to have sex in different ways, uh, less subtly also often, and notice they're going to be a little less in tune with reality. And if you ask them what is of ultimate significance, the person with a deep gaze will say something like, well, to serve this beauty I sense in reality that uh, I can tune into and I kind of know that there is a fundamental sense of truth and this is produced through our human relationships the closer we get to love and that this love has some kind of ultimate principle of blah, blah, blah. They'll say something like that. They'll give you a high-depth answer. There's a researcher, Fowler, on the developmental psychology of this. Not very good stuff, uh, but at least people have attempted to do this. and I believe it is possible to see an empirical difference then between high-depth people low-depth people. And and the other person, the Wall Street guy or the conventional guy will say, well, just to live life, I guess, to be a good person, they won't be able to answer from the same depth of their being. And they won't be able to relate to you and resonate with you at the same depth of their being. And this is what spirituality does. And... If we ignore this part or say, well, so so it is reducible to neural firework and then confabulations, yes, it is, but it doesn't take away anything from the depth. So there's a yes and here. I mean, on the one hand, essentialism is always false. Everything is always uh, emergent and through the relationships between other things. And for this reason, it can always be reduced to those things. But essentialism is the sin of the people who are high on depth and high on state, but low on complexity in code, and they will believe in magic in different kinds. But on the other hand, you have reductionism. So people who are high on complexity and high on code, higher than their stage of depth and state, which means that you can always explain a little bit more than the sparkles of reality, meaning that you always feel uh, like Raleigh is a little bit disenchanted, which means you get a subtle itch to get back at it. That wait a minute, this is just a piece of mechanics. You're you're not a wizard, blah blah blah. Uh, you're just a man, and and all of that stuff. And magic goes away, and you get a little bit frustrated whenever you hear anybody else going about on about the magic. And you always want to dispel the magic. You always want to subtly get get back at the world. And uh, the right place to be is probably, I mean. Uh, I mean everything just evolves, and and these things are going to be at different dissonances and different people, and that's part of life. But the optimal part for for any particular person is to have their inner depths matched by complexity, and back, and 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 the other way around, uh, so that you do feel that this is an enchanted, awesome, super cool world, and that you can take issues of spirituality seriously and and live a w- life of faith, meaning you believe in something, for instance, an, a moral project that is beyond and bigger than yourself, and you don't feel you have to pick it apart all the time. And you still can be a critical mind, and you can still uh, joke about your own gods, and you can still Piss on your own holy symbols if you need to, and you can still not be a sucker for the manipulation of others or the totalitarianism that magical thinking open up, opens you up to. And and that's that's a I mean it's an incredibly difficult balance. And even you know even in research they have shown us that these things aren't friends. You know, you set somebody up on thinking analytically for a while. On a hard problem, and I don't know, you play Mozart to them or whatever, and they will be less inclined to be subtle, spiritual for a moment. And you set up a group for mindfulness meditators, and 20 minutes later, it's easier to they have higher suggestibility, so you can easily, more easily, fool them that they have a false memory they don't actually have. You can give them false memories, so they're more easily manipulable because they they went into a more malleable space within. So these things pull in different directions, and our work is to to move back and forth between them, between crude reductionism, heartless, I mean, heartless, Nietzschean, disenchanted, grim, cut-to-the-bone reductionism, and trembling spirituality, devotional, unapologetic, being in love with the world. Both of these things must be coordinated with one another, even though they are opposite principles.
0: That's a, a bold and interesting statement. I would suggest that I like most of what you said and I could agree with most of it. And I suppose, you know, the best takeaway is you can say from the old Moody Blues song question of balance, right? And the, and the balance is going to be dynamic. We're going to be at different parts of the continuum at different times on my wedding day. I hope I'm at the most spiritual part. The S word. I said it. Oh my God. I'm the most spiritual part of the continuum when I'm, you know, Day trading stocks. I hope I'm not paying any attention to it. And in general, I want to be in between. I'm going to throw out you you give the good example Wall Street guy and hippie. I'm going to throw something in the middle, which is more of a question of balance. Let's call it the Silicon Valley person, right? Mm -hmm. These people tend to practice spiritual practices, et cetera, and they use that as fuel to create things in the world, to to move the world forward in in a real way. And I find that that's the tension I personally am looking for. As you've probably guessed by listening to this, I am an outwardly focused person. I know how to go inside. It's useful. It's enjoyable. But I'd rather go create something, tell you the truth, and I will only use that interior stuff to the degree that it helps me create exterior things more efficaciously. Mm-hmm. I, I think of that as the Silicon Valley balance between the two. Mm-hmm. And I say for myself, I swing all the way from hippie to Wall Street, but probably spend most of my time in this tuning that I just named, I just made up, of Silicon Valley, which is I like and find usefully internal states. I don't actually believe them, uh, but I use them as ways to make me a more efficacious player in the real world. So, I mean, uh,
1: in, in the listening society, uh, I mentioned a, a, f- a few different important groups to to metamodernism and, and uh, the, the different kind of landscape of class that is uh, showing up in, in, in post-industrial uh, digitized internet societies. And a core group, you, uh, we mentioned it briefly before we also started talking, the, is the yoga bourgeoisie. And you said you're not yoga bourgeoisie. But uh, so the Silicon Valley types, I guess, are a bit. And it's, I suppose the core population of metamodernists these days are from the yoga bourgeoisie, and especially perhaps around Burning Man culture and so on, for the simple reason that okay, it's somebody who went through the whole modernist thing for a while, and maybe they were successful. Early on, and uh, then they realized they were still miserable, or they that made them miserable even. And then they started meditating and taking uh, psychedelics or whatever, or or these things partly overlap. A few years back and forth, and some some major life crisis, and then some therapy, and then usually they land in a position where they value spirituality and they want to use their life for doing something good or greater and they and they still have strong financial capital and so on and and, and all of these all, all of this business know-how and this is a, an important group in in uh, uh, core cities cities in europe also in, in London in Berlin in, in uh, uh, stockholm and so on and Copenhagen so it's important to understand the yoga bourgeoisie. it's not the only part of the of the metamodern uh, crowd here unfortunately the yoga bourgeoisie generally is a bit too limited in its perspective and and what I feel is lacking is uh, are, are two things really I mean it's uh, it's a it's more revolutionary faith that would make them more interested in, in doing things like political metamodernism or uh, or your game B and the other thing is actually the code, um, the metamodern code. Meaning they they need a more proper map of what they're doing. Uh, they just have an idea that hey, if you reach, it feels really cool to be in these high states. So you can open your heart. You can not be a dumb capitalist, and you can uh, you can transform business. You can be a conscious capitalism. Well, you can use your business for good. That's all right, but it won't take you to the next stage of society. They don't have a real map to gather around and to be a revolutionary class, to be a class that turns against modern society and organizes to consciously change its structures, its informational architecture, as we mentioned, uh, the structures of the internet, uh, its political structures and its culture. uh, And that's what needs to be done. So I see within the yoga bourgeoisie that you mentioned that yes, they have both of these elements but it's not successfully coordinated so rather you have people going too far in in one direction and then too far in the other or not successfully coordinating that these things into shared life projects which take real risks and r- real brunt of the of the problem and they end up always flying around the world and going to thailand another time and going for another hundredth workshop and, and so on and then everybody wants a platform everybody else and they want to all want, want to create the the, the next uh, facebook for all of these other people or and or be the, the the meeting place for all of the others what i feel we need to do is to mobilize this class and to radicalize it. Within that class, there is certainly a lot of know-how and capital and informational capital and, and uh, financial capital, and also, I suppose, uh, emotional capital in the sense that there, there's a lot of energy. People are energized, but there is not enough cultural capital. They don't quite see the world. And this is actually what they might lack then from the POMOs, from the postmodernists. Uh, a little bit more critique, uh, a little bit more of seeing society as society, of
0: seeing things sociologically, might be exactly what this part of the world needs. I would suggest that's part of it. But you also hit on the other, which is they need the right code. And so far, they don't have it. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. We could go on for two more hours. And I'm going to ask you if we could schedule another session sometime in the future. This has been, I think, the best single episode I have done yet. But we're out of time. And so I think we're going to wrap it up right there. I think this has been phenomenal. But if we're going to talk more about it, we've got to do it on another day.
1: This one is for long runners. You go out, you, you run 15 kilometers or something, and you put on this
0: one. Indeed, indeed. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.